Well, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. As we mentioned just a moment ago, we want to complete our sermon or try to on the sixth piece of armor, which is the sword of the spirit. Verse 17 of Ephesians chapter six. After we mentioned this morning that uh, this is part of the armory that we are to put on as we face the devil, as we face a world that certainly is against us and not for us. And uh, being using the imagery here uh, in the figure of a soldier and having the different pieces of armor around, we look at today at, or look today at one of the pieces of the armor that we're to put on, which is both defensive and offensive. That is, it's a weapon that will be used both to defend ourselves and also to attack. And so we have this piece here for one of the main weapons of the soldiers we mentioned. And so let's read verses, uh, or verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As we mentioned this morning, we don't have to spend a lot of time, thankfully, interpreting what this means, the sword of the Spirit. The text itself tells us that our sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, is the Word of God. So the first thing we looked at was something of the manner or the idea of a weapon for a soldier and it was of course the sword and we said that it was either in his hand or it was in the sheath uh, it was with him at all times and as i said it's both defensive and an offense of weapon secondly we saw that the word of god in this place is called the uh, the sword of the spirit and we mentioned three reasons why this would be so obviously there's more but we just dealt with these three things this morning we said because first of all he's the author of the word of god as we mentioned while it's true, men actually pin the Word of God. And what we have before us is uh, the work of what we would call man and making sure that we have the Scripture. But really, the author behind the Word of God is not men or the thoughts of men or the ideals of men, but it is God Himself, the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is God's domain. It is his work. It is his word. And thus we believe it to be so. The second thing we made note of in regard to this is that he is the interpreter of his word. Now, it's true. It is our responsibility to understand what God has written. He's written a word, the word of God and common everyday language when it was first given it was given in hebrew as far as the old testament and aramaic and the new testament it was given in what is called koine or common greek so it was just the it was the language of the people today we have our own bibles in the english language what is which is written in the common everyday language that we can understand you don't need to be a quote an Einstein just to understand the surface matter of the word of god there's true it's very true that there are parts of scripture is as uh, Peter says, that are hard to understand. But that's not true of every single verse in the Bible. If someone has told you that, then they've lied to you. It is only some things that are hard to understand. In the main, the rest of it is pretty uh, understandable. Now, it's true, the spiritual idea of the Word of God, and by that I don't mean the ooey-gooey, ooh, that feels good type of spiritual thing, but I mean the, the saving understanding of it, yes, does come from God. Our minds by nature, because of sin, are darkened, and thus we cannot understand even the simplest, then, of spiritual realities in a saving sense apart from the Spirit of God. And that's why the Spirit must quicken us so that we can understand the Scripture. But not only that, the 
the very understanding itself, or the hermeneutic for the big boys, this simply means how to interpret the Bible. That comes from the Spirit of God Himself. And we gave several references to that. We're not going to repeat them or read them over, but that was Psalm 94, verse 12, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. So if we want to know the mind of the Lord, that is, what the Word of God truly means, then we must know what the Spirit has to say in regards to the Word of God. Scripture interprets Scripture is the old Protestant uh, byword in looking at that. Then the third thing we said that uh, is it belongs to the, uh, the Spirit of God is that He is the one who gives power to it. We listen to the Word of God, especially as Christians, we can, seal, can feel the convicting power of it, can't we? Even the lost can come under uh, conviction by their own conscience, by the Word of God itself, speaking the truth. Whether you're quoting exactly word for word verbatim from the Word of God, or you're speaking in generalities from the Scripture, thou shalt not do this, or you ought to do this. There is a power within the Word that causes um, folks to have... Uh, pains of conscience. And as I was talking to someone this morning, and when you begin to deal with folks, they're going to feel that guilt pressed upon them by their conscience. And one of the ways that they will try to get out from under that guilt is either one, they'll make excuses for what they're doing, or, which is one of their favorite plays, is that they will put the guilt back on you. Suddenly they're innocent and you're the bad guy. And that's normally how people work. That's our conscience. That's how we once did it before we came unto uh, to the grace of God. But in all of this, we have to say, because it is the Spirit's Word, it is the Spirit Himself who gives us, or gives it, its power, its pungency, its pointedness, and even its salvation unto man. John 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit that giveth life, the Bible tells us. Now, I told you this morning that I labored at this for several reasons, and actually I didn't get done with all that. You only heard two this morning. I have three. I said, first of all, it's to affirm to us the Word of God is just that. It is the very Word of God. And for most of you here this evening, I don't think I have to do a lot of arm twisting, so to speak, to get you to understand that this Bible is God's Word. We believe that. At least most of us, I think, here this evening would hold to this, that, yes, what you hold there on your desk, or what you have in your lamp, it, lamp is the very Word of God. And again, we ought to be convinced of that if we're not. We're wasting our time if we do not believe this to be the Bible, as well as we're sinning. And then secondly, we mentioned that if it is what it says it is, then it is all sufficient. And our duties as Christians and our standard of what faith is, what's right and what's wrong, how we're to please God, how we're not to please God, the Word of God is sufficient. And being quite honestly, how would you know if you begin to add things to the Bible or take things away from the Word of God and try to practice those things as hopefully that's going to please God, how would you ever know? How can you know whether you're causing God to be happy with you or displeased with you if it's not recorded in that all-sufficient Word known as the Bible? That's why, again, we practice that what is called the regulative principle. Yes, it sounds easy. But let me assure you, once you begin to try to implement it, it becomes very, very hard. And then the last thing, and this is, that's where we got this morning, that's where we stopped. I want to bring this last point, why we labored so hard this morning to speak of the Spirit 
and all of that regarding his word is that if it is what it says it is, and as we showed this morning that it is, how precious then it ought to be to the people of God. If this Bible is what it says it is, and it does what it says it does, and it is our life as it were, it's the thing that reveals unto us God, it reveals Christ, it reveals the Christian walk, it reveals my heart, my sin, all those things. It tells me how to please God, how I should not displease God. Then if all that's true, then brethren, it ought to be a very precious and delightful thing to us. Last week, the other evening, as we were talking downstairs at the Turner's home, that was one of the uh, part of the subject matter of uh, the, the little talk that I gave. It was something of the of the delight that we ought to have in the Word of God. You know, if this is, if there is no other book like this, and there's not, then what a precious book it is! What a different book it is! How we ought to view it. Not as some masterful piece of literature, but in, which it is, by the way. It is, as far as our English Bible, it's the greatest thing that's ever been written in the English language. The cadence and all that stuff that goes behind all that stuff that makes good literature, it's all found here in the Word of God, the English Bible. But, but, but beyond all that, the point of the matter is, it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God whether it had all of that fancy literary stuff in it to begin with. It's God's Word. Now, the beauty of it is it does. So we get both, both of, we get both of both worlds there on that sort of thing. But David, again, go back to, let's go to Psalm 119. I told you this morning you'll be turning to a lot of scriptures and we're going to do that again a little bit this evening. Not as much as this morning, but we will do some. But in Psalm 119, here is a psalm that deals with David's heart towards the Scriptures or the Word of God. And of course, as we mentioned, as we preached out of Psalm 119, verse chapter, that first part here a few weeks ago, we made note that David uses several different words to describe the Bible or the Scriptures in it. He talks about the precepts. He talks about the testimonies. He talks about the law. He calls it judgment, statutes, and so forth. And so this whole psalm is dealing with the Word of God. Almost, I think, but one verse, it doesn't speak about the Bible itself. So every other verse in this psalm deals with the Word of God. They all do in some way or other. But specifically, each verse, except for I think one, deals specifically with the Word or the statutes or the law of God. And David here is singing, as it were, his heart out in regards to the Bible. Now think about this. He's singing about the Bible. He's not singing, quote, about God and to God, about God himself, but in reality, he's singing about God's word to God and the joy that he has in it and how he delights in it. And again, brethren, this is another reason why we do sing the Psalms here is the very fact that we're, as it were, pouring out our heart, or at least David's heart, as we read his words or sing his words unto God. And this is what God desires to hear of us. As we said a minute ago, that when we offer praise unto God, this is what he says glorifies him. And so David is definitely glorifying God in this psalm by speaking of his word, which in another psalm, I think one Psalm 138, he said his, that his word has been placed even above his own name. Think about that. We think of God's name being right up there at the top. It's the very chiefest of things. God's name, a name that means everything that what God is, that he is Jehovah, the one true and living God, that he's gracious, long-suffering, forgiving, and all those things. 
But David says, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, if you want to use that phrase, when, what he says is that God had placed his word even above his own name. Now, think about that, how important then the word of God must be. That's Psalm 138, verse 2, by the way, if you don't believe me on that. That God's word is above even his own name. That's amazing, isn't it? So, uh, we can see why then David in Psalm 119 would laud and praise the scriptures. Just as we ought to do. Well, let's look at some of that. I'm not going to read all one Psalm 119. It would certainly be delightful, but... Uh, we don't have the time tonight. Uh, I certainly recommend it to your reading. But Psalm 119, for instance, verse 16. Notice what he says here. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Notice that I will delight myself. This is a matter of the will and, and of the mind. Verse 40. Here again, David speaking something of the preciousness or the delightfulness of God's word, his love for it. Read what he says. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Behold, I have longed after it. This is what I want. This is what I, I live for, he says. Psalm, uh, again, same Psalm, verse 72. Just plowing through here. He says, the law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. David was a man who was well off. You can see that when he begins to accumulate all the stuff for his son Solomon to build the temple. And yet he says, you know, all of that's nothing in comparison to the law of God. The law of God is what's so important to me. The law of God, the Bible, the word of God is better than to me than thousands of gold and silver. Uh, not verse 97. They're here again. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Here again, expressing his love. Verse 140 of the same psalm. 140. He says, Thy word is very pure. Therefore, thy servant loveth it. Here we see one of the reasons why David loves God's word. Because it is very pure. I wonder these folks today who are telling us how many problems there are in God's word and how many mistakes there are and how it's not right here, not right there. We're not sure if we got it all. You think they can really mouth 140 and really believe it? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? There's something just not connecting in their noodle when they can have all this so-called doubt towards God's word and not being what it says it is. And uh, yet David says, here's one of the reasons why I love it is because it is pure. Thy word is very pure. Therefore, thy servant loveth it. So there's a reason why we ought to love God's word is the pureness of it. Sounds like a future sermon there, doesn't it? Psalm one six, uh, same one, number 167. Uh, most of you know I love preaching about the Bible itself. That's a, just a great subject. Uh, Psalm 119, then verse 167. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. Here again, he puts the obedience of God's word there with his love to God's word. And then the last one, 174. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Well, again, if we see the Word of God for what it is, that it is the Spirit's Word, He's the author of it, He is the interpreter of it, He is the one who gives its, its, its 
gives it its power, then obviously these are some of the things that we need to take note of, don't we? And to love God's Word as we do. Now, getting back to the more to the text that we're looking at this evening, back into Ephesians 6 and verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The third thing I'd like us to see in this outline as we were working through it this morning is the fact that it is called a sword because it carries the qualities of a sword. Remember here, it's called the sword of the Spirit. Uh, Paul here puts these two things together, the imagery or the figure that he's trying to show us here that the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, that what the Spirit uses as a weapon for us, is the Word of God. So there must be some correlation then between a sword and the Spirit. And so that's what he wants us to do and wants us to see in this. And here we do see this from the Word of God itself. So plainly, allows us to see that. First of all, as you know, a sword, if it's to be effective, is to be what? Sharp. What good is a dull sword? Not very much, is it? You might be able to hack something, but you won't get into the finer detail of uh, killing your opponent if it's not a sharp sword. And so what you need is a sword that's very sharp and pointed. And that's exactly what the Word of God is. And so it does liken itself to a sword in that manner, doesn't it? It's sharp. It's pointed. It's able to cut. And as we mentioned a little bit ago, how that when we preach God's Word and you sit there and you listen and it hits something that uh, perhaps you're not doing as you ought or you've been guilty of some sin and I preach against it by hitting the Word of God and you go, ooh, yeah, that's right. Oh, that hurts. You know, ooh, I don't like that. That's the Word of God doing its work and it's sharp. It's cutting into your conscience. Well, that's what Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. So if you want to go over there and see that, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. He says, For the word of God is quick, and that there means uh, alive in our terminology. For the word of God is quick and powerful, and notice this, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents or intents of the heart. Think about that. That's what he tells us, something of the characteristic of God's Word. It is such a thing that it's, notice, it's even sharper than any two-edged sword. No matter how much you sharpen that blade on a sword, both sides of it, it is never going to be as spiritually sharp as the Word of God. Which is able, as he goes on to say here, to pierce even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit. In other words, it can get deep down into the recesses of our souls. And it can know things that no one else knows. It can even know things or reveal things about ourselves that we did not know until the Word of God was preached and used Against us. I, I'm amazed sometime I, after I get done preaching, someone will come to me and say, well, you must have had a tape recorder going on at my home because you just preached about how I... And no, it's not. It's not me. I'm not really... I don't have your houses bugged at all. I wouldn't want to bug your houses anymore. I hope you'd want to bug my house. But it's not me, brethren. It's the Word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It's the Bible that's able to get inside your noodle in your heart and to be able to tell you things and show you things and show you just how dark and weak and helpless you are without Christ. It can show the Christian the very same thing. It can enlighten the mind and the heart. It's the light to our path, you remember. Remember the Bible tells us in the book of, what is it, Jeremiah, I think it's 19 or 17, the the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the next verse, it's God. And sometimes He allows us by His Word just to see what is going on behind those eyeballs of ours that we may not see. You see, I don't have to follow you around to know what you're like. All I have to do is read the Bible. And I know what you're like. I know what I'm like. So we see the importance then of the Bible being like a sword. It's able to cut. It's able to get in there and do its business. Hacking and tearing and cutting and poking. How many of us here have not felt something of the power of the Word in our souls? Another thing about a sword and something of the qualities here of it is that it's, we're able, as we mentioned earlier, to fight or to defend with it. This is the instrument of God that we are to use to do battle with Satan and all the lusts of sin and of the world. This is the weapon. In fact, you remember we mentioned this morning, this is the only weapon itself mentioned in this section. Everything else is stuff for the defense. It's not an attacking, or everything else hasn't been necessarily an attacking thing. Everything's been kind of a defense thing. But here we see a sword is given to us that we are to to not only to defend ourselves, but also to make the attack. When Satan comes, we're not just to defend, which we are, but we're to make advances. And we do so as we fence, as it were, with God, uh, with the devil and with sin and this world. Another thing we can think of it is just as the sword brings deliverance. You know, you hear kings, it's my sword that did this, that sort of thing. Well, the same thing with the Word of God. It is truly that which brings deliverance. Especially as we think tonight even of salvation. And here we should know that the work God uses means to convert sinners. And He uses that means of the Word. It's not the agent, that's the Spirit of God. But He does use the Scriptures to convert men. To cause them to be born again. I'm not using these terms in their precise theological reason of meanings, but you get the idea. For instance, in James chapter 1, in verse 18. James 1, in other words... God uses His Word to cause us to be born again. We see, of His own will begot He us with the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. What does He use to uh, cause us to be born again? He says here, with the Word of truth, the Scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, very plainly. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So we see one of the important things then in our, as we 
see that it brings, it's the deliverance even unto salvation. It saves our souls. The Word of God also is used to enlighten the mind to the dangers of sin and to bring to us to the dangers of it, the consequences. And there again, that's why we preach the way that we preach. Paul said, or Peter again, in verse 25 of that same chapter we just quoted, But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It also shows us what is needed to be saved. What is needed for salvation. Remember, uh, we were quoting Second Timothy this morning, chapter 3. Paul writing to Timothy. But the verse before it said, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy says, You've known that from a child, that it's faith in Christ. And by again, that's before the New Testament was written. The Old Testament, surely. And then for our day-to-day walk with the Lord, we see that it is the Word of God that enlightens our path. We won't take the time, but you can see again, over and over again, as David sings that psalm in Psalm 119, he makes mention of that very thing. The next thing I want us to look at is the sufficiency of Scripture. We've talked about that a little bit already, but it does contain all that is needed to save us and to sustain us in the way of the Lord. For instance, and I'm just going to use this even just as a for instance, how about through our afflictions and trials and tribulations? Where would we be, brethren, without the Word of God? Where would we be when trials and troubles and sorrows comes upon us without this book either preached to us or we have it to read itself. Where would we be without the Scriptures? How would we get through our afflictions, our trials, our tribulations, our sorrows? Where would our comfort come but from the Word of God? Where would our direction come but from the Word of God? Psalm 119, again, verse 50. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort and my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. This is my comfort, he says, that in all the afflictions that I have sustained, that it is your word that quickens me. If we have a problem in this life, we ought to turn to the word. Today, you can pay mega bucks to go lay on someone's couch and spill your guts unto them. And here, it's free. Here it is in the word of God. All we have to do is open it. Seek our own set godly counselors, pastors, and saints who are mature in the Lord. Now, a lot of times our problem continues because we either because we don't believe that principle, or we have worldliness in our motives and actions, or we're just plain ignorant of what the Word of God has to tell us. And that's probably where a lot of our uh, problems arise. Either it's unbelief. Or it's ignorance in the things of God. David again says, Unless thy law had been my delights, I should have perished in mine affliction. David said, If I had not loved the Word of God as I had written earlier, and as we discussed it a few moments ago, all the things that he talks about, how precious that was, he says, Unless the law had been that, what would have happened to him? He'd have perished. Rather coming out on the other side of his affliction 
a better Christian for it, he might have still been laying there in the slough of despond. But he says here it's the Word of God that he had his delights in. Not just that he had the Bible sitting on his coffee table or sitting on his uh, uh, shelf, or the matter of fact, that he had it so much memorized, but that his law was David's delight that became the way that he did not perish in his affliction. You know, if there's any fault, fault with us or with everything, let me assure you this evening, it's not the Bible. It's not the Bible's fault. Remember, the Bible says itself that it's very pure. It's true from the beginning. So if there's any troubles, brethren, it doesn't come from God's Word. The trouble lies with us. We've got nobody to blame but ourselves. But, oh, it's so easy to shift it, isn't it? We can always play what Adam did. Or, Adam, what did you do? Remember, God questioned him. What did you do? Well, it was the woman you gave me. And what did Eve do? She shifts it off to the devil. Well, he tempted me. He beguiled me. And there's Satan. He had nowhere to go, did he? Well, that's kind of like we do. We're easy to shift the blame. Instead of taking it to ourselves and admitting, yes, I'm wrong, or yes, that's right, and I'm wrong. Instead, we shift the blame to other things and making it be the problem rather than ourselves. See, that's what's so one of the, another one of the beauties of God's Word. It has us pegged, doesn't it? It knows us in and out. Well, as we mentioned that this is a weapon that is to be used specifically, as we're talking about this, as an aid against Satan. Now, how is it then? Well, this is number five for taking notes. How is it an aid against Satan? Well, first of all, Satan known, is known as the father of lies, isn't he? You know, he? Jesus called the Pharisees liars, and he says that's because that's what your father was. Well, the Bible, though, tells us the truth. If you want to know what truth is, search the Scriptures. If someone else is telling you the truth, then you can believe that. But it's only by the basis of the Word of God that you know that this is true. Satan and the world will lie to us. Now, they'll tell us some truth. Satan will tell you a lot of truth, as a matter of fact. But you don't know that everything he says is true. But when we come to the Word of God, we know that it's true from the beginning. All of it is true. And why is that? Because we said, as we, as we mentioned this morning, the author itself is true. One of the things that you and I bank on, that is our trust, according to Hebrews 6, is that God cannot lie. And if He cannot lie, then neither can His Word lie to us. The promises are true, brethren. The threatenings as well are true. Secondly, it reveals unto us our true nature and our true problems. We mentioned that already uh, a little bit by Hebrews 4.12. Again, as I said, uh, the Bible has us pegged down to the T, doesn't it? We cannot escape its power, its truth. You know, you may think your conscience is all-powerful, but even the Word is stronger than that because it's the Word of God that gets your conscience going and rubbing against you. 
Thirdly, it gives us directions in obedience. Satan would have us to give all, get off on the wrong road, wouldn't he? He would have us either go to the left or he'd have us to go to the right as far as the pathway is concerned. And the Bible, though, tells us to go straight on, doesn't it? Remember our Lord's temptation? What did the Lord use against Satan's own slots? He gave the Word of God back to him, didn't he? This is what it says. Thus saith the Lord, when Satan came with his temptation, do this. Ah, this is what the Bible says. Oh, no, but do this. No, this is what the Bible says. Do that. This is what the Bible says. Three times Satan. And each time the Lord gave back what we would call the biblical answer. And that's our problem, isn't it, sometimes? We may not like the Bible's answer. And so... We won't give it or we won't do it. How about Eve's dilemma that she had? God had already said, The day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt die. Well, Eve just didn't believe that, did she? She should have come back and said, This is what God said. Instead, she added to God's word. She didn't obey God's word. And she was listening to the devil. Yay, hath God said. Which brings me to number uh, a point here. How will then Satan attack us at this point? We mentioned before, if we've got these pieces of armor on, we can be assured then Satan is somehow going to attack in that spot. Well, if I have a sword, which is the Word of God, and Satan comes against me, what will he try to do with my sword? What will the devil do with my sword? That's what we want to look at now. So this is number four, or number six, excuse me. How will Satan attack us at this point? Well, one will be the unbelief of Scripture. He will cause us to, or desire to cause us to, not believe the Word of God. And again, we go back to Eve. What did Satan say to Eve? Yea, hath God said Did God really say that, Eve? You know, is this Bible really the Word of God? We hear this constantly, don't we? Sadly, you don't have to go to a bar nowadays to hear the drunk speaking against the Word of God. You can go to seminaries and colleges, Bible colleges and churches, so-called, who will give you, yea, hath God said, is this really the Bible? So that's one of the places in which God will try to take the, the sword out of our hand. Secondly, well, he may know that he can't get us to deny all of it, so he'll just get us to deny some of it. He'll make your sword blunt. In some areas. You know, we said that the sword of the Spirit, or the the Bible, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's got two edges on it, and it's a very sharp, razor-type thing that we have in our hand. Well, again, following that figure, what Satan will cause us to do is to dull those edges. And he'll do that again by not saying, oh, that's not the Bible. Don't be so foolish. You can't. That's not really the Scriptures. You don't really believe that, do you? He'll just make you believe certain parts aren't true. How many times does that happen? Look at your new Bibles today and you can see that nonsense. For any of you who are carrying some of the newer versions, look up 1 John 5, 7. 
It doesn't say what mine says. Look up Acts 8, verse 37, I think. It doesn't say what mine says. There's some tampering going on somewhere. All that is, is the devil trying to blunt the edge of our sword. If he can't get you to put it down, and he can't get you to deny it, he'll just cause it to be a little worn in some places. Thirdly, if he cannot do this, then he will get you to see, well, in reality, it's just unimportant. Or... Other ideals and philosophies are just as useful and just as lawful. Now, we think the Bible is very important. And hopefully we can stand firm on that. Well, Satan won't touch us on that. What he'll come up and do is say, well, you know, yeah, you're right. That's really a good book. Yeah, that's a good book. You hear people calling it what? The good book, don't you? It's the good book. They don't have a clue what that means. But nonetheless, it's the good book to them. But, it's not that's the only good book. There are other things just as useful out there. I mean, you can use uh, philosophy, though Paul damns it in the second chapter of the book of Colossians. You can use other ideas and thoughts and man's reasonings and logic and philosophy and wisdom. Those are just as good. They can help just as well. The other night, you remember, we were preaching at the rescue mission and we spoke on the topic of drunkenness. And, you know, the Bible says that salvation is the cure for drunkenness. And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of Christ Jesus. That's the true cure. You can go to AA, and yeah, they'll offer you some help, and maybe some of that stuff in and of itself is very pragmatic, and it might work. But brethren, it is not the cure. The cure is Christ and His Word, and the power that lies behind them. But you see, the devil wants us to take our eyes from that, and begin to look at all these other pretty philosophies and diamonds out there that are just as good as we think. And young people especially are being pressed on that as they go out into, begin to go out into the world and school and, and uh, friends who don't hold the same kind of things that we do about this book. You know, they say, well, I respect that you are a Christian. I respect that you, you believe the Bible and that's the way. Well, I respect that. Bull, they don't respect that. They had their way, they would yank you right into hell with them. That's how much they respect you and your Bible. So they'll come along with their sweet talking, and they will get you to try to take your eyes off of this book. I've seen it over. They did it to me. And I'm sure they do it to others. Thankfully, they didn't succeed. And when I was in college, thankfully I was saved. Well, I was already in college, but I was saved already. And then I... I felt and saw the differences that were really out there. But God, again, the Word of God became my stay. Another thing the devil will do, and you can look at any footnote of most Bibles, he will either add to God's Word or he'll take from it. He'll pervert it. He'll get to the very issue of things, which is the text itself. Paul had already said, even in his day, there were men who were corrupting the Word of God. You hear that the oldest are the best? 
Well, in Paul's very day, which would have made it the oldest, guess what? He said they were already corrupting the Word of God. So you can't necessarily trust the oldest and the best, as they say, if you read your notes. Well, I hope you don't read those notes at the bottom or in the side. The text is what's inspired, not the junk on the side or the bottom. Uh, number five, another thing he'll do is, is that he will steal it from us. Now, by that I mean this. Go over to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. We've dealt with this here recently, but it is sure a very important matter we ought to pay attention to. Remember the Lord gives this parable of the sore in Matthew 13. And because uh, he knows his disciples are dull of hearing, he has to give them the true answer of what this sore, this parable meant. And he gives that in beginning in verse 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received the seed by the wayside. Satan can literally, as it were, the moment we preach God's word and it starts to beginning to penetrate, at least in your conscience, Satan can come and in his method and his way and his devices and his wiles, steal it from you. That's what he says here. That's what happened, didn't it? That the word of God was snatched away, that which was sown in their hearts. Well, how does he do that? Well, he can make you daydream during the sermon. Because this is talking about the sowing the seed, preaching. Make you daydream, make you think about things you ought not to be thinking about. Make you begin talking about things you shouldn't be talking about after you hear the Word of God. You go home, turn on the boob tube and, you know, just let your mind be saturated with all the trash. And, and it just pushes the Word of God out of the way, doesn't it? You don't spend the Sabbath as you ought. Well, that's the way God or the devil can steal the Word of God from us does it all the time. And he's very, very good at it. Satan's been around longer than we have, and he's a lot smarter than us. Number six, he fools us into thinking that if we are good hearers, we have met our duty head on. But James says it's not the hearers who are blessed, but it's the what? The doers of the word. So you all may come here, and I'm, I'm not making fun of this. I'm just, it's just illustration. So uh, if you put your notebooks away, I'll know you're mad at me. But you may sit here and take all the notes and outline perfectly everything and every stutter and every bad word I say. You may get all of that down. And you get all the Word of God down. Every port and portion of the Word of God that I've preached, you may have it down in your notes. And you may be able to regurgitate it at the lunchtime. But... Brethren, if you don't do it, you've only fooled yourself. Be not hearers only, but doers. You're to be good hearers. Jesus warns us, take heed not only what you hear, but how you hear. That's why we preach sermons on how to hear God's Word. Because we know that in our day and time, just as it was in the Lord's day and time, there is a necessity, there is an incumbent upon us to be good listeners And some people just don't know how to listen. They're so busy watching the TV, so busy watching sports and all other things that just kind of rapid fire. This slow, methodical preaching through the Word of God without all the mess on the walls trying to dictate this and that and the other. I don't have PowerPoints going on. It just isn't very flashy, is it? 
So we teach you how to be good hearers without all that mess. But brethren, if you only be a good hearer and not a doer, you're fooling yourself. You may have all the heads memorized, but if you don't put them into practice, you failed. And here again, this is where Satan triumphs over us in this area. Good hearers, old boy. Taking notes. Pay attention. I don't take my eyes off the pastor. Because if I know if I take my eyes off the pastor, my, my mind's going to wander. So I watch him. I listen to him. But when you go through the door, you don't obey. Brethren, Satan has won. He's taken the sword, as it were, out of your hand. And then number seven, what will he do? Well, again, he will cause us to, or he will cause others for us to misinterpret God's word. Remember Satan and the Lord with his temptation? Did uh, Satan quote the Bible to the Lord? As a matter of fact, he did, didn't he? He quoted scripture to Jesus Christ. The thing about uh, the devil and the scripture is that he misinterpreted it to the Lord. He didn't put it in the right place at the right time. It was a misapplication, a misinterpretation of the word of God. And Satan does that with his ministers that he sends forth, people that he sends forth. Who will pervert. And I don't mean they'll change the scripture. They may just, they even may use the King James in our, or whatever Bible that is your favorite Bible to use. And they may be able to quote it with eloquence, but they'll twist its meaning. That's one of Satan's ways. Did we not, for those of you who were sitting yesterday in my garage as we were having the garage sale, and that man came along? Remember that? Well, if some of you weren't there, obviously you wouldn't know that. But there was an end of it. We were sitting there all nice and comfy ourselves. And a man came up and he began talking to my daughter. And he was saying great things. He was talking about, you know, the Word of God. He was quoting Scripture. He was telling her, you know, you ought to honor your husband. And husbands ought to think very highly of their wives. And he says, I'm just out spreading the Word. I enjoy going around talking about the I thought, boy, this sounds very refreshing. And then he came in and started denying the Trinity. Now, he didn't have a sign on his forehead said, Danger, I'm going to deny Trinity in about five minutes of my conversation. So watch out. He looked like, he did, he looked like a regular Joe, honestly. We never would have thought. But here comes spewing out of his mouth the anti-Trinitarian nonsense, the Arianism that was believed in the early church uh, just soon after uh, the Scriptures had closed, even while the Scriptures had closed. That is, they did the denial of not only the Trinity, but the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he was going. But thankfully... Uh, we put a stop to that. But there again, there was a man who was using the Bible. But he was one of Satan's agents in that he was spewing falsehoods. He was misinterpreting the Bible. There was an illustration at work right there. Someone this morning asked me about it. And I said, they go, that would make a good illustration, wouldn't it? I said, you know, I'm going to use it tonight. As it was, it was an excellent illustration for proving that there are those who misinterpret God's word to our damnation, if could be. 
And then lastly, and again, these are just a few of Satan's devices against our armory in this piece, is that he will blind our minds to it. Second Corinthians 4, 3, But if our gospel be hid, and that's the gospel we preach, from the word of God, as Peter says, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan positively blinds the minds of men so that they cannot believe. So, well, they can't believe anyway. That's right. He even makes it harder. He even puts them further down in depravity by blinding their minds. Well, that's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So let's close with some application or really observations. Let me just say this. First of all, I'm going to have to go through this very quickly because we're past time. First, my exhortation to you this evening is to labor to know God's Word. Be familiar with it. Take personal time with the Word. Take family time with the Word. Take time especially to hear God's Word expounded. This is the primary means of knowing the Word of the Lord. Now, I realize we've got computers, we've got books, we've got Bibles that you can buy at Walmart. But again, that's not first century Christianity. I'm not against all of that. I think it's great and we ought to take advantage of it. But again, that's not how they did it in the first century. When Paul told them this, this the way that they heard this stuff was the elders reading it to them and then them examining it afterwards. The Word of God is meant to be heard, not only read. So, brethren, take time to hear. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God chose the foolishness of preaching and so forth. And that area. So I won't go into that. Secondly, labor then to believe all of God's Word. And I hope I'm speaking again to the choir here. You know that. But also, I must add that it is, that it is sufficient unto every need that we have. A lot of times, this is where we'll run it. We'll believe it's God's Word. We'll believe it's authoritative. But we won't think it's good enough. We won't think it's sufficient. And if you don't think that's true, look at today's church. And see all the gadgets and the gadgets and the nonsense that they have brought in in the name of religion to try to make an appeal to people. They don't believe... God and His means are sufficient. They think they have to come up with better ways. Thirdly, labor to be obviously obedient to all of God's will and word. Failure to do so, brethren, is sin. James 1.22 And then lastly this evening, to the unconverted or in our midst... Uh, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be pardoned for all of our sins, and to have a righteousness that's imputed that would entitle us to heaven, then we must have faith in the gospel. It's an imperative, it's a necessary thing that we believe the promises of Scripture regarding eternal life in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 tells us this very plainly. That if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, how will they hear? 
he says, unless they have a preacher and so forth. We need to, uh, you need to listen to the Word of God. You need to believe the Word of God. All that it has to say regarding your condition, that you're doomed, damned, and lost apart from Christ, and that Christ is all-sufficient to save. The Scriptures set forth Jesus Christ. Remember, he told the Pharisees, search the Scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. John 20 tells us the very reason why he gave this book was that we might believe on him. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And then the last is a sermon, I'm not going to preach it, but a sermon that uh, Peter gave to the household of Cornelius. Listen to his words. This is Peter speaking. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with good power, or excuse me, and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that he, it is he which was ordained of God to be the quick of ju- judge of quick and dead. To be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And that's what we preach here this evening. That it is through him. Whosoever believeth in Christ shall receive remission or forgiveness of sins. And what God does with those is that he'll never remember them again. So stop what you're doing. Quit and come to Christ, believing and trusting in Him. One passage, and let me stop with this, and I won't even comment. I'll just read it. Psalm 119, verse 155, back where we were just earlier this evening. He says, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes.